0: We are today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and this message really builds on last week's message and last week Pastor Char began the conversation by dealing with the question of how can a biblical sexual ethic be good for everyone and it's an important message uh, for us to hear. Uh, but just as Char began uh, his message, I want to begin the same way by saying that sex and what we will look at today, marriage, these are deeply personal topics. And anytime these issues come up, they immediately go to our own personal interactions, ourselves or maybe our family or our friends, with questions. And Paul actually, in that same vein, he deals with questions with upwards of six or seven different possible groups. But like I said, I want to begin by saying that, you know, the goal of today's message is not to put a brick wall up and say like, this is the purpose of marriage. Deal with it. Figure it out. No, I think like Paul's tone and tenor in this chapter, it is to begin and to continue the conversation. This chapter, I should admit, at the beginning, is probably, uh, or it's at least regarded and in my experience, probably one of the toughest passages to translate and interpret. In fact, if you were to take your Bible and compare it to a different English translation, you're gonna see some very difference And that gets at the heart of what Paul is trying to speak to. And that is this, that he has a pastoral sensitivity, a gentleness in bringing about instruction, guidance to these people who are struggling around questions of sex and marriage. And so to illustrate that, I want to point out two verses, verse 7 and verse 37. Look again at those with me. First, verse 7 says, I wish that you were all as I am, which would be single or single and celibate. But, Paul says, each of you has your own gift, the charismata from God. One has this gift and another has that. And then moving forward to verse 37. The man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and who has made up his Mind, I mean, four times he says, like this guy's made up his mind, right? To not marry his fiance, this man also does the right thing. Now, I chose these two verses because they illustrate the overarching heart of this passage Paul's pastoral sensitivity. He not so subtly says four times to the Corinthian church, stop pressuring young people stop it now at the church in Corinth they were actually pressuring young people to not get married to break off their engagements and Paul is saying to them stop it stop doing that my heart for the church is not to pressure it's not to cause anxiety it is to give gentle direction prayerful reflection this is why he uses the word in verse 7 that each has a gift and how do christians respond to the gifts that god gives how are we to respond to those? Paul, at length and beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, will go into how a Christian is to respond to the gifts that God gives, but here he begins the conversation by simply saying, whether you're single or you're married, it's a gift from God, and it should be regarded as a gift from God. Now I think we're gonna need to be honest here, and. I'm gonna ask you to be honest many times today (laughs) during the message. Is there any less pressure on young people today? Unmarried people, especially young people, are pressured in our day and age and in the church toward marriage because we believe the misstep that marriage is the ultimate relationship. For us it may not be explicitly taught but it is caught and assumed that unmarried people especially young people should be pressured towards marriage. But Paul here in this text for the Corinthian church and I believe also in our day and age objects. And why does Paul object? Well he says to the Corinthian church, you know you've overfocused on something You've made something ultimate that shouldn't be ultimate. The Corinthian church had overfocused on someone being married or single, saying one was more spiritual than the other. One of them opened up a Christian to more of God's gifts, more of God's calling, more of God's plan, and Paul simply says flat out, that's wrong. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. All in Christ have available to them God's calling, God's plan, and God's gift. Nothing is held back. For the Corinthian church, they simply put, between being married or single, one was ultimate and one was not. Now, Paul, or excuse me, Char said last week, uh, he talked about a misstep that the American church has made, and he said this. He said, the misstep that the American church has made is saying the Bible holds marriage up as the ultimate relationship, God's best for people. But as he concluded, and I agree, the Bible never says this. How did the church make this misstep why did they make this misstep what happened for us to get here there's probably several factors but perhaps one of the things is that in an era of you know the 60s and the 70s when everything was free love and all of those things were with whatever whomever you want whenever you want perhaps the church reacted by focusing on a committed covenant relationship of marriage. But what I'm saying is the church focused on the wrong committed covenant relationship. There's only one ultimate committed covenant relationship, and that is between Jesus and his church. And the truth is that the view that marriage is the ultimate relationship for humans has resulted in a lot of broken marriages. Built on the faulty expectations that you can find the one, it's resulted in brokenness. The unbiblical promises that, hey, if you're faithful to Christ, you'll have an amazing marriage, Has resulted in brokenness. And we need to be honest ourselves as Calvary Chapel. You know, when I went to Bible college, it was not uncommon for people to call Bible college bridal college. That there is this sort of unemphasized but present pressure for young people to find a spouse. I myself wrestled through an immense pressure to be married. And I'll be honest and confess as well that I thought that married leaders were automatically more spiritual than unmarried leaders. But the church, we have made this culture of unbiblical promises about marriage. And we together need to attend to the wreckage. There are so many in my generation, and going back, who have a trail of broken marriages who need attention. We need to attend to the wreckage of the culture we have built. We need to rebuild the roads. Now, the Bible does say that marriage is very good, a good that God created, but it is clear, only God and his love are ever held up as ultimate, as God's very best for his people. So the main point of my sermon today is that both marriage and singleness are a gift from God they're a gift. So whether you're married or single, these are things from God. And Paul's heart in this passage, as difficult as it is, and yes, there are many confusing sections in this chapter, but Paul's heart, as difficult as it is to understand, is for us to utilize these gifts by remembering that gifts from God, they are to be used in God's power. That God can work powerfully in your marriage or in your singleness. It doesn't matter which one you are, God can still work powerfully. That as we receive these gifts, we will have questions and we should deal with those questions honestly. Not skirting main issues, not allowing the magazine rack and the grocery checkout stand to speak more about the issues of our lives than the church. Speak openly and honestly about the things that are going on, all with the intention that we would use the gifts that God gives us for other people. That's what gifts are for from God. Not for you. It's for others. And so whether you're single or whether you're married, that gift is for you to give to others. The purpose of marriage is to respond to it as God's gift. Now this is the core of Paul's teaching in First Corinthians 7. And it's a bit difficult to get at the core of Paul's teaching here, because like I said, this is a tough text. If you read ahead this chapter, you probably read it and thought, well, all right, we're teaching this. You probably got to verse 25 where it started talking about virgins, and you're like, all right, here we go. It's a tough text. It's tough to get at the core. In fact, As I studied through this, I looked at verses 17 through 24, and I wondered, why are these verses here? Like, verse 16 clearly is instruction to husbands and wives. Verse 25, clearly instruction to engaged people. What is the purpose of verses 17 through 24? What is the purpose of having a little, you know, interruption that focuses on circumcision? What do these verses serve the topic of marriage? So let's begin there and look at verses 17 through 20. Let's just take a small section of that. Paul says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So this is the core message. Verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Uh, Not sure how that's possible. But was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. These verses Paul uh, gives us are not a digression. Paul's not, you know, like a dog saying, Squirrel, I'm gonna talk about circumcision here. He, these verses are an illustration of the overarching point Paul is making. Look again at verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Literally, remain in the calling in which you were called. He repeats this all throughout this section. And in fact, it's hinted at or alluded to throughout the entire chapter. So this is the core message of what Paul is making. So let's dive into this. Calling describes a Christian salvation, which of course would come at certain social settings, right? So when did you become a Christian? Were you young? Were you old? Were you working? Were you not working? Were you married? Were you unmarried? Paul points out that people were called when they were circumcised or uncircumcised. That is as a Jew or as a non-Jew. And by bringing up these social settings, Paul is saying that they are irrelevant. They don't matter. In fact, changing them is not necessary to be spiritual. So, if you came to Christ as a Jew, you don't need to become not a Jew in order for God to work. Or the implication for marriage is, hey, if you're married, God can work, whether or not you're single or married. Now, I'm going to have several caveats here throughout because there's some interesting things that people have said historically about this chapter. This is one of the more misinterpreted chapters of the Bible historically. Some have taken verse 21 and its complex Greek language and told slaves that they should remain slaves. But this goes contrary to the heart of the passage. Paul is not pressuring people to remain as they are. Paul is not saying do not change your circumstances or do not seek change. He permits change within the chapter. He's not saying don't get married or do get married. No, Paul is saying you need to shift your focus. Remember your calling. And what does this do? Well, let's talk about the different social settings and just begin again honestly by saying a lot of the times when we're talking about changing our status, those things are self-focused. So you could say something like, I am pursuing a promotion at work in order that I might be more fulfilled. Or, I am pursuing this education so that I can have more of an advantage against my fellow human. Or, I am gonna get married because I wanna improve my status and have something to talk about with my friends. In other words, I need to be in a different situation because I lack in my current situation. But Paul says, You don't need to change your social setting in order for God to move powerfully in your life. Remain as you are with God. This is the heart of 1 Corinthians 7. Let me illustrate with a quote. Eugene Peterson says that the aim of a person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, act out love. The only place you have to be human is where you are right now. And the only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day the house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you have been given, the weather conditions which are amazing in Southern California that prevail at this moment. You know, whatever situation a Christian is in, the Lord can powerfully speak, lead, and work. You don't lack, Paul is saying. So stop pressuring young people like they lack. You don't lack. And I would say it's not just the young people who are feel pressure at times. I mean, marriage has pressure and anxiety. You think you need to be better at this and you know not do that. But Paul says, that may be true, but let God work. Let him work, especially in your marriage. Now, in addition to the interruption of verses 17 through 24, which talk about us remaining in where God has for us, expecting him to powerfully work, in addition to that, Paul also interrupts himself later. And what he does there is he reminds us that, hey, we actually have an entirely different reoriented view of the world. You know, Jesus, he saved us and he has made a whole new world, a new universe, you could say. And we're now a part of Jesus' kingdom, citizens of Jesus' city, members of Jesus' family. Our life is defined by Jesus, not by what the world says. In verses 29 through 31, Paul, again, he interrupts his instruction to engaged couples. Look at that. And he says this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who want to buy something as if there was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Why? Because this world in its present form is passing away. Now, obviously, Paul is not saying, hey, if you want to be married, pursue marriage. That's great. You know, think about it, responsibly reflect on it, and then it's okay, get married. Only to then say in verse 29, but live like you're not married. That would be absurd for him to say that. And so obviously you can tell, even in the English here, that Paul is repeating a phrase over and over again. And so he's using a wordplay to illustrate a point. Live in the world, you do, live in the world, but don't live as if the world is your life. The German reformer Martin Luther puts it this way, Christians should use what is available, but not sink too deeply into, whether, into either with love and desire or suffering and boredom, but should rather behave like guests on earth, using everything for a short time because of need five times in this little section verses 29 through 39 Paul repeats repeats the phrase as if not meaning that your relationship with the world is not the determining factor of your life now I want to point out as the scholars do that you know Paul's saying right here it seems like he's saying live a detached life Right? don't mourn too much don't rejoice too much don't enjoy marriage too much, don't enjoy, you know, possessions too much, but that's not what Paul is saying. There's some overlap there, but really what Paul is saying is that the world which is passing away is totally differently related to you than an unbeliever. It is that you are to enjoy your marriage, mourn in tragedy, rejoice at the heights. You're to enjoy the creation that God has given you with the understanding that God wants to powerfully work through those things. Let me give you an example. Just this week, I was talking with someone and they mentioned that, Their Christian family has, um, one of the siblings is not a Christian and she's unmarried and now pregnant. And so there is a lot of frustration and perhaps even uh, difficulty, okay? This isn't an ideal situation. What's gonna happen? And my encouragement, along with Paul's here in 1 Corinthians 7, is what does God wanna do? That situation doesn't limit God. In fact, that could be the very soil God uses to bring forth His fruit. But we as the church often get riled up. They don't believe. They're pregnant out of wedlock. Oh my gosh. It's all going to end. And it's true, there are stats that bear out that children raised in, in less than ideal situations have struggled. But that doesn't mean that God cannot work. These two overarching points, that God can powerfully work in any situation and that the world isn't the determining factor of our life, these uh, points give a correct expectation for the gift of marriage. And they prepare it, really, because Anxiety comes up in marriage. Anxiety comes up in life. And so let's look at these anxieties and let's work backwards from verse 40 and look at a few of these things. As I mentioned in this chapter, there were spiritual people in the church in Corinth who were pressuring young people not to marry by telling them that marriage was a sin. Look at verse 28. Paul says, if you do marry, you have not sinned. Why would he feel the need to say that? He's already said that earlier in the chapter. It's probably because the Corinthian church is telling them it's a sin to get married. Now, I should, you know, we're gonna have many moments to be honest, but let me say that this would not be the last time spiritual church people pressured young people by calling people calling something sin. Now Paul's not afraid to deal with sin, read chapters 5 and 6. He's very bold in calling out sin. But here Paul's pastoral heart comes out. He he says especially to these young people, like don't feel the pressure of this, but rather he says engage in responsible Church community supported, Jesus focused, Holy Spirit led reflection. You don't have to be married, but if you want to, pray about it. Talk to trusted people. Seek the Lord. Let Him deal with your heart. Now, this is especially true for the Corinthian church because they had something going on that Paul calls a present crisis. Look at verse 26. Paul says they're because of the present crisis. Now, all of this present crisis informs the rest of Paul's instruction in the book or in the chapter. Like, So what is the present crisis? Well, we actually don't know. Paul doesn't spell it out for us. The scholar N.T. Wright, he says that there has been now traced a historical famine in the area of Greece around this time, 51 A.D., right around the time Paul was writing to this Corinthian church. And so Paul could be referencing this famine. And he said, hey, there's a famine going on. I don't know if it's the exact time to think about getting married I mean, right now we're in a moment of peace and prosperity as we have for many years here in this country. But think of a a time of warfare, for example. Like if there is battles and bombs and things happening around you, you wouldn't necessarily be encouraging young people to get married. right? You might say, well, let's talk about it. And this seems to be what Paul's heart is. In fact, N.T. Wright translation says, hey, this present situation won't last long. Just take some time to carefully reflect on what's going on. Now, this is Jordan's simplistic presentation of this chapter. And it might not be simple because this is a complex chapter, but it's even more complex than I am saying. For example... I can't help it. We're just going to go into these very complex parts. Is that all right with you guys? Look at verse 25. Anybody look at that word virgin and think, "What is that?" Maybe your translation talks of, you know, makes reference to a father giving his virgin daughter in marriage. That's unlikely the correct translation. But the term Paul chooses here is this word virgin. And what Paul is referencing is probably in general engaged couples. But the truth of the matter is Paul probably chose this word because there are girls as young as 12 years old getting married in this society at this time. And so it could be that Paul has chosen this word simply to say, maybe let's wait until she's a little older or until she chooses or is willing and ready Contrary to the culture of the day, Paul encouraged marriage only when there was a true yearning for a marriage union. It's actually contrary to what the culture of the day said. In fact, earlier when he's talking about divorce, um, you know, he references for a second, he doesn't really get into it, but he references for a second remarriage and he says you don't have to feel the pressure for that either. But the truth is, it's actually written into Roman law that a man has to be remarried within six months of divorce or death of a spouse. And that a woman gets 18 months to remarry. So there's this immense pressure in the society both to be married and to be remarried. And Paul is simply saying, no. Take your time. Reflect. Paul's heart here, as you can see in verse 32, is to remove this anxiety around marriage and to do so with responsible reflection. You know, if you're unmarried, and even especially those who are married, gather safe people around you to help discern the items of anxiety in your marriage or whether or not you're going to be married. Help examine your own motives. Why do you want to be married? Is it because you think you lack? Ask hard questions. Give wise evaluation. Now, I find it a bit ironic because Paul's heart in this chapter is to release us from anxiety. But if you just read verses 25 through 40, it kind of causes anxiety I mean, it's so confusing. It seems to be that Paul is saying there that singleness is, a, or is the better all people should pursue. Doesn't it seem to be saying that? Now, Char is gonna preach on singleness next week, which is again gonna be an important message, but as we interpret the text today for the purpose of marriage, here are some things to keep in mind. First, Paul is single and celibate and he believes that it is a better for him. That's what he says in verse seven. Right? This is a gift from God for me. My singleness is a gift. My celibacy is a gift from God and I respond to it as a gift. So it would be very strange for Paul to say something like marriage is the ultimate thing and I'm also single so I'm a sub ultimate guy. He's really trying to walk this road really wisely. Paul is also responding to the Corinthian church, which, as I said, was pressuring people to remain single. In fact, earlier in the chapter, which we'll look at in a moment, Paul says, if you're married, you should abstain from sex with one another because that's the spiritual thing to do. And everyone in the room thought, what? But this is what was taught at that point. Now Paul, if we look at verses 25 through 40 and think, is Paul elevating singleness above marriage? No, we need to remember that Paul obviously has a high view of marriage. Just read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. It's a very high view. You have to let Paul's other writings inform this text. For Paul, each singleness or marriage is a gift. And the real difference Paul is zeroing in on here in this section, the difference between married and single is that the married are divided. Look at verse 34 at the beginning. The married person's interests are divided. And how are they divided? Well, naturally in time or in other areas and aspects of responsibility. But contrary to a plain reading of certain translations of this section, Paul is not saying or uh, that marriage or being married leads to a distracted devotion to the Lord. Paul is not saying that marriage causes anxiety here. No, Paul, again, his pastoral heart is not that. Look at verse 35. I want to read it in the New American Standard Version, which says this. This I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. This is spoken to both married and single people. And so for the married, let the fact that God can work at whatever stage your marriage is at, Whether you're married early and you're kind of dealing with those sort of training wheels moments or you're mature in your marriage or you're dysfunctional or fruitful, whatever stage your marriage is in, let the fact that God could work anywhere, anytime, free you from the anxiety around marriage. Pray that your marriage would amplify your devotion to the Lord. Paul obviously is not criticizing marriage in this section because, you know, think of Priscilla and Aquila. This married couple was a powerhouse in the early church. Instructing, training, pouring into God's people and building God's kingdom. Paul isn't thinking here uh, that their marriage is sub the single life. No, he is pointing out to both married and unmarried that you can have a devoted life to the Lord. And Paul's pastoral heart is, it's our benefit. Don't, he's not trying to put a, a noose around our neck. That's the literal explanation of the word restraint in verse 35. But again, he wants to free us from this anxiety around marriage and pursue responsible church community supported, Jesus focused, Holy Spirit led reflection so that our marriages would lead to a more devoted life to the Lord. Now again, I think we need to be honest and point out that not all marriages lead to an amplified devotion to the Lord. And that's part of the complexity that Paul's dealing with here. I told this story for service and it came to my mind then and I'll share it here also is, you know, early in my pastoral ministry in the city of Seattle, you know, we had a home group network where, you know, a bunch of different small groups met throughout the city and I was gathering at a particular home group and it was, you know, a small group at the time, about six of us. And, you know, we talked through uh, the scriptures and we were about ready to pray uh, for one another and for the different things that are going on in our lives. And, and so we were going to, you know, there's only six of us. So each of us could pray, you know, which not, not all the groups are able to do that. So it was great. And we were going around each person praying and next to me was a wife and a husband. And the husband started praying during the prayer time and the wife next to him, next to me, she just burst into tears. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh, that's strange. Like, I should ask her, I should follow up about that. So after that, I followed up and I asked her, you know, is everything okay? You know, what's going on? And she said, that was the first time I've ever heard my husband pray in front of me. Well, he's a part of men's groups. He does things with his friends, supposedly, but he had never prayed in front of his wife. It's not always that a marriage amplifies devotion to the Lord, but Paul's heart is that a marriage would do that. Life in marriage can produce anxiety. Paul is dealing with these things and his heart is to release people from the anxiety around marriage, the pressures in society and within the church. But he's also hoping that his teaching would free marriages up to build each other up. Remember, a gift from God is for the building of other people. And so he's saying we need to build one another up. And again, let's look at some of the errors in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, again, people were saying, you know, we're so spiritual. So, you know, one of the spiritual parts is for you who are married to abstain From sexual relationships with each other. Look at verse one of chapter seven. You know, the Corinthian church asks, they give this slogan or quote, they say, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Does Paul agree or disagree? Well, this whole chapter is sort of complexly laying that out. But verse two, since sexual immorality is occurring, right? In other words, you know, they are abstaining from sex within their marriage. And the scholar Gordon Fee goes on to say and says, and that's resulting in sexual immorality in the marriage, which if you abstain from sex in the marriage, it could likely, are we surprised that it led to sexual immorality? No, no we're not surprised by that. In fact, guys, this is one of the crazier thoughts, but this could be true the same scholar, Gordon Fee, he actually thinks that the sexual immorality, which he says in verse two is present tense, right? The sexual immorality that is going on in the Corinthian church is actually the prostitutes that were referenced in chapter six. So so let me spell this out for you guys. This one is a hard one for me to wrap my head around. This could mean that people were so spiritual spiritual in quotes here, that they promoted abstinence in marriage, but their view of the human body was so not spiritual that it didn't matter if their spouses went to prostitutes to satisfy their desires. Well, you know what I mean? that's just, What do you say at that point? Well, I think one of the things I'd like to say, which is the kind of overarching point of this message is, is Paul not gentle with them, if that's the case? You would think he'd be a little harsher, but he's not. Now, again, I think this is a point for us to be honest and to admit that this would not be the last time that quote-unquote spiritual people got off track in some weird ways. Right? You haven't been around the church very long. If you haven't had someone come up to you who's very spiritual, tell you to do this thing, and you think to yourself, That's weird. Can we be honest about that? This is the church. We should be honest. Sometimes spiritual people are weird. Now, to be honest, even more so, the view of sex that considers sex dirty or a necessary evil for reproduction is not that far off from what the Corinthian church taught. But Paul says that sex is not dirty. And it is also not only for reproduction, but what does he say? He says it's for mutual self-giving. Read with me, again in verse two, the second part, Paul says there, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to the wife, to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Perfectly balanced in mutual self-giving. Both equally represented. Something like this up until this point in history had never been said about marriage or sexuality. Timothy Keller highlights this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which he wrote with his wife. He says, here at a time in which women were legally considered the possession of their husbands, Paul makes the revolutionary claim that the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. This was a major blow to the traditional double standard, namely that men were expected and allowed to have multiple sexual partners, but if a woman did, She was despised. Paired with the previous statement that the wife's body also belongs to her husband, Paul was teaching that each partner, male and female, had the right to mutual sexual relations. Nothing like this had ever been said before. Absolute revolutionary change, everything that we know about marriage and sexuality. And we've inherited that. And we have that as a foundation Thank the Lord in our culture today. Now, even our Western sensibilities, you know, we read this and nowadays we say things like, wow, Paul's equal rights, how great. You know, I've always heard other things about Paul. That's not the case. So we love this part of Paul. However, Paul, he doesn't then agree with our culture, which says, well, if men get this, why can't women get that? Oh, he reorients it not around anything but this, God's intentions for marriage and sexuality. And it challenges a society even as much as it comforts it. In fact, for me, mutuality in sex is easier said than done. And it requires us to communicate with each other. Let's just get some of these questions out there. When should a married couple have sex? How often should they have sex? Guess what? The culture is speaking into this. Just look at your grocery checkout aisle. They're informing the next generation, but this should also be something that the church talks about, but something I'm not gonna do in graphic detail. But simply to say this, Paul encourages us to talk with each other as married couples. Talk about it. You have the Spirit of God in you. The Holy Spirit can powerfully work in your marriage, even if you're totally embarrassed by a question like that. Each of you has rights, but also each of you has gifts to give to your spouse. Paul even goes on to say in verse 5, you're even obligated to give them. Keller, again, is helpful here. He says this, each partner in marriage is to be most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure but with giving it. In short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. When you get to the place where giving arousal is the most arousing thing, you are practicing this principle. mutual self-giving in sex, in marriage, Paul comments on it simply to say you are to give your gift of marriage as a gift to build up someone else, to build up your spouse. Now any of us who've been married for any length of time know that Keller's comments here as true and important as they are, they themselves can actually become difficult to fulfill. And so we can can become consumed with our performance in marriage. But I love this book, The Meaning of Marriage, written by Timothy and Kathy Keller. Uh, It really gets at the pastoral heart in marriage, around anxiety and difficulties that come up in marriage. And so I want to quote Kathy Keller here and her comments. She says this, Tim and I came to realize that orgasm is great, especially climaxing together. But the awe, the wonder, the safety, mm, the safety and the joy of just being one is stirring and stunning, even without that. And when we stopped trying to perform and just started trying to simply love one another insects, things started to move ahead. We stopped worrying about our performance and we stopped worrying about what we were getting and started to say, well, what can we do just to give something to the other? Paul's heart here is to release the anxiety around marriage by pursuing self-giving love in the marriage. And all of this is built on and comes from a greater mutual love and unity and affection. All of this is built on and comes from Jesus's love for the church. That's how I know that any of you, whether sexually fruitful or sexually dysfunctional, can have God work powerfully in your marriages because it's built on the love that Christ has for his church even around the topic of divorce. Paul turns to that topic right after these verses, in verses one through seven, Paul turns to the topic of divorce, and he says something again that captures the heart of this chapter, and it will serve us to give us a really nice conclusion to today's message. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says there, if an unbeliever leaves in divorce, let it be so. The brother or a sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? How do you know? How do you know what God will do? God wants to work powerfully in whatever circumstances you are in. I mean, let's again be honest as we have been throughout this sermon. When we came through these doors, some of us came in knowing we're not in circumstances that we're proud of. How do you not know what God will do? Paul uses the same logic earlier in verse 14 where he concludes that children could become holy through the life and witness of a believing spouse even with a non-believing husband or wife. In other words, God's powerful work in marriages is not in marriage is not limited. It's not limited by the presence of a non-believer. It doesn't prevent it from God making a marriage holy nothing has power to make something unholy what god desires to make holy now think of this as an illustration think of jesus healing a leper okay so in that time you were not permitted to touch a leper Because in touching a leper, you would be made unclean. And you couldn't be a part of society. You had to go through rituals of cleansing and sort of sanitizing. But there are several occasions where Jesus touches a leper. And when Jesus touches a leper, Jesus does not become unclean. The leper is healed. When Jesus touches a leper, Jesus is not made unclean. Jesus makes the leper clean. So when Jesus decides that he's going to touch your marriage, it doesn't matter what circumstances surround it. Jesus will decide to work powerfully. Jesus will decide to make it holy. Jesus will be the one who makes it healed. Jesus has the power to do that. And the question, I think, for me, anyways, and for us, is do we expect that? Do we believe that? This is why Paul builds the foundation for the purpose of marriage on Jesus' love for the church. That's the highest love My main point today has been that marriage and singleness, they're both a gift from God. Paul's heart is to respond as if they are gifts. To respond knowing that God wants to work powerfully in whatever circumstances. To know that God wants us to give our lives, whether single or married, to others because that's what gifts from God are for. And to be honest. And that's where I want to conclude with a little bit of honesty. I know that there are unhappy marriages here. I know that there are frustrating marriages. I know that there are anxiety-inducing marriages. And Paul's heart for us is to free us by first talking about it with someone, talking about it with the Lord. So if you are in a marriage like that, have you been honest with yourself? Have you been honest with your spouse? Have you been honest with God? You know, I'm surprised so often being in the church now, working in the church many, many decades now, just thinking how much, the church needs to learn simply to be honest with God. To tell him, God, I'm unhappy in my marriage. This is difficult. And God hears and God speaks and God leads and he can work powerfully. And perhaps in your current situation, You should consider counseling, and that's something that we should consider as the church. Perhaps you individually should consider counseling, or maybe you as a couple should consider counseling. Both my wife and I have gone many years with couples counseling. I've been in individual counseling at different points. They're supplemental to what God is doing in my life. But let's zero in as a church just now in our current situations. Whatever we come in these doors with, wherever we're at, let's zero in and ask ourselves in the particular situation you are in, where does the Holy Spirit need to bear fruit? Where does the Holy Spirit need to bear fruit? It doesn't matter your age the Holy Spirit still wants to bear fruit. It doesn't matter how long you've been married or how short you've been married, the Holy Spirit still wants to bear fruit. But where he wants to bear fruit is in the situation that you are in. That's where the fruit comes from. It's not abstract, it's concrete. And I just want to say yet again, please don't move forward alone. You cannot move forward alone. You need to seek responsible, church-community-supported, Jesus-focused, Holy Spirit-led reflection. And you know what? I look out on this congregation. I've only been here, you know, almost two years. And I know that there are marriages here that the Lord has done amazing works in. And you're maybe not in a place at this current moment anyways where you're in a frustrating or unhappy marriage. And if you're in that position, you're in a position to help. We need help. And if you're in that position to help, please don't give cheap answers. It's difficult. But we believe that God can work no matter what situation we are in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we go to worship now, as we honestly perhaps deal with some of the realities that we're facing, or maybe we are in a place where we could help out, Lord, we want to be a part of your powerful work in the marriages at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Lord, though the church has not been and not had a perfect record in its discussion around marriage, Lord, we can right those wrongs and build a path forward into your future for us all. And so, Lord, repair the marriages that are broken here. Heal the marriages that are sick. Work powerfully in the marriages all throughout And Lord Jesus, we expect you to work. You have a future for us. A future built on your goodness, your truth, and your beauty. We look forward and anticipate living into it. In Jesus' name, amen.